We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use one of the Pew Bibles. You can find Deuteronomy chapter 4 on page 128 or page 148, depending upon which version of the Pew Bible you are looking at. We have two different ones, and so 128 or 148. But just as a way to kind of bring you up to speed, we are in a new sermon series in which we're going through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're calling this a call to covenant relationship. And if you remember, Deuteronomy really is just one final speech from Moses, Israel's great prophet and leader, who brought the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt, the people of Israel, out of their bondage to Pharaoh. And he brought them and led them to this place, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And it was there that God descended and he spoke to Moses and he gave his people His law. He entered into a covenant relationship in which he agreed to provide, to protect, to guide, to lead his people. And they committed to obeying and following and doing what he commanded. It was an 11 day journey to the Kadesh Barnea. And there they sent spies into the promised land, the land that had been promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the God who speaks says to them, he says, I'm giving you this land, this land that I promised your forefathers. You go in and you take it. But the spies return and they say, we can't because the cities are fortified and because the people are giants and they're too big. And so because the people were afraid and they refused to trust God and follow him, he judged them. And he said, you don't want to go into this land? Well, then I'll let you wander in the wilderness until this entire generation dies off. And so after 40 years of wilderness wandering, now Moses is leading the nation of Israel to the point where they're about to enter into the promised land. They're to the east side of the Jordan River and they're ready to cross. And Moses is trying to steal up their courage to strengthen their faith that they would listen to the word of the Lord and that they would obey it. And they would go in and possess what God had promised them. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's word. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, we read, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering, so to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen 
unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. It was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. The first thing we see in this particular passage is that Moses focuses on obedience as the path to blessing. Now, God has already shown himself to be gracious. He delivered the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery to Egypt, before he offered to them the law of the Ten Commandments. He's already proven to be good. He's kept his covenant promises that were made to Abraham to bless the people of Israel. And his intention is that if they obey him and they go into the land that he promised, he will continue to bless them. So Moses urges him to listen to the statutes and judgments he is teaching them. He says, for they are the very life and the basis for their possessing the land that God has given them. So the nation of Israel is about to enter into this promised land. There's going to be a choice. They're going to be faced with a temptation to obey the voice of God. And it's clear that Moses highlights this in this passage down further around uh, verse 12 when he says that the voice of God spoke at Mount Sinai, but you saw no form. But the voice spoke and gave to you his law, the Ten Commandments. Will they listen to the voice of God or will they listen to a million other voices telling them to follow their own hearts? To chart their own path. To do what feels right to them. Will they listen to the God who has spoken to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob? Or will they listen to their own selves about how they should live? Will they listen to the God who is speaking to them before they cross the Jordan River? The one who's leading and guiding them into the promised land? Will they be faithful to this covenant making, this covenant keeping God? Will they listen and will they obey? Will they hear And will they do what he says? Will we be faithful to listen to the word of God and do what he says? Do we really believe that it's the word of God that's the path to a life of blessing? Do we, like Moses, believe that it's obedience that leads us to God's blessing? Now, it's most famously stated in Deuteronomy 6. This idea of listening and hearing that's referred to as the Shema. The reason why it's called the Shema is because in Hebrew, Shema, O Israel, is the first word, the passage in which we hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is where we see, again, repeated and numerous times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the idea of listening and loving. Because listening has more to it than just hearing sounds, hearing words. Listening is where obedience begins. Now, listening can be difficult, especially for someone like me who likes to talk. 
I love to hear myself talk. And sometimes what might take five words, I can turn into 15, 30, or 45. So listening is a challenging task for me. But that's what Moses begins with. He says, oh, now Israel, verse 1, listen. Why is that important? Because the word listen in Hebrew is more than, like I said, just the hearing of sounds. But it carries with it the responsibility of responding, of doing something in light of what it is that you've heard. So this idea of listening and loving that we see in the Shema is the idea of this circle of faith and obedience. God speaks and we hear his word. And if we love God, then we'll obey and do what he says. And if we obey, then we'll grow in our love for him. Love becomes the motivation for your and my obedience to God's law. If you don't truly love God, then you're not going to do what he says. You won't obey him. And you can't truly say that you love God if you don't keep his words. And a lot of people say, you know, I've got a great relationship with God, but I don't need to go to church. Okay? So you can't have it that way. You can't love God and disobey his words. The Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This theme of loving and listening runs through the whole book of Deuteronomy. But the Bible repeats this numerous times. And Jesus himself says the exact same thing in John's Gospel. Chapter 14 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's this idea that when God speaks, we hear and have a responsibility to obey. If we really love God, when God speaks, we're going to trust him and follow him in obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 11 sums this idea of obedience to the past of blessing like this. Obey and you will be blessed. Disobey and you will be cursed. This is covenant language. God commits himself to his people. I'll provide. I'll protect. I'll take care of you. And you have responsibility to obey. You obey, I'll bless. You disobey, and you'll experience judgment. So this concept of obedience appears both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it relates to hearing and then doing. But it's not just anything that we hear. We have to listen to the right voice. And we have to be willing to submit ourselves to its authority. In the Greek, the term for obedience in the New Testament has this idea of positioning yourself under someone's authority. Submitting yourself to their rule and their reign over you. It's the idea of a quarterback submitting to the coach when they disagree on a play that needs to be called. The quarterback says, I think we should call this play. The coach says, no, I think we should call this play in this this circumstance or this situation. And ultimately, the coach has the authority. And the quarterback has to submit himself to that authority. Another word in the New Testament means that we trust. So we submit, but we also trust. The quarterback says, the coach knows more than I do. He understands something he's trying to accomplish. So I'm going to trust that what he's telling me to do is the right thing. A definition of biblical obedience in Holman's Illustrated Bible is this. Hear God's word and then act accordingly. We hear and then we act Urban's Bible Dictionary says true hearing involves the physical hearing that inspires us. But it's also the belief or trust that in turn, the love that motivates us to then do what God has said. So we can simplify it like this. Biblical biblical obedience is just this. Hearing God's word and trusting him and doing what he says. 
That's why Moses warns the people in verse 2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. They're to submit themselves to the authority of God's word, but the temptation will be to change it, to fit their needs. Because at the core of each and every single one of us, we rebel against the rule and the reign of God in us and over us. We don't like the fact that he's sovereign and that he's God and gets to say, this is what it means to be in covenant relationship with me. This is what it means to hear my word and to do what I say. We don't like his authority, so we refuse to submit to it. I'll give you an example. I heard this story. There was a very prominent businessman, and he wrote to Mark Twain, and this is what he said. He said, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb to the top of Mount Sinai, read the Ten Commandments aloud at the summit. And this is what Mark Twain replied. He said, I have a much better idea. He said, you should just stay in Boston and keep them. See, we want to add to God's word because we don't want to submit to it. We don't like the fact that when we hear the word of God preached, when we hear the word of God taught, when we study the word of God, it's binding on us. When we, when we hear the word of God say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength, that's binding on us. And it confronts us at the places of our deepest need because we realize, I don't really love God. I love myself significantly more. And it convicts us. And we have to repent of sin. But we don't like that God's word is binding on us and we have to submit to its authority. And that's exactly what had happened to the people of God. Circumstances arise and the people of God change what it means to obey God. What it means to follow God. And so just as a way of illustration, Moses points back to their wilderness wanderings. He says, let me just remind you what happened when you worshipped the bell at Peor. If you're not familiar with the story, I'll try to briefly move through it. It takes place in Numbers chapter 22. As Israel's about to enter into the promised land, the king of the Moabites, Balak, which means devastator, he was afraid that uh, the people of Israel would do to his kingdom what they had done to the others. And so he sought this prophet named Balaam to curse Israel so that they would be driven out of the land. He's like, I don't want to have to go to battle with them and be defeated. So if, if I pay this guy some money, then maybe he'll curse the nation of Israel. And so the elders of Moab, they leave with all this money and these treasures and they go to hire this man, Balaam. And he was a kind of a soothsayer, a, a warlock. And when Balaam begins to seek God about this request to curse the nation of Israel, God says to him that you cannot curse them. Because remember the, the promise that Abraham received, that those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. And so he tells Balaam he's not allowed to curse the people of Israel because they have been blessed. So Balaam, the soothsayer, sends the men from Moab back on their way and uh, the king wants to see this happen, so he sends more princes with more promises of rewards. And so Balaam asks these guys to stay the night again while he seeks the face of God. And that night, God tells Balaam to go with the men if they call upon him. But early in the morning, he rises and he makes preparations to go and he puts all his stuff together and he doesn't wait for the men to call him the way God commanded. Because he wanted what it was that they had to offer. He wanted the treasure and the money they were going to provide with him. So he's looking for a way to make it look like he's doing what God is commanding him to, but he still get what it is that he wants, the treasure that was being offered him. So he begins to leave, and this is a real famous passage. God places an angel in his path to block him. This angel, the scripture said, was sent as an adversary against him. And yet God was stopping Balaam, but Balaam is oblivious. 
He doesn't see the angel that stands as an adversary against him. And so his donkey refuses to move. And so he begins to beat his donkey. And then the donkey speaks to him. The donkey speaks. His eyes are open. And what we see is that Balaam had been blinded by his sin. He acknowledges sin. He offers to go back. But the angel instructs him to continue. But to only say what God has instructed him to say. You remember what else? It's to bless the nation of Israel. So he arrives in Moab. The king takes him up to the high place. And it's the place where idol, idol worship was taking place. And sacrifices to other God occurred. And Balaam proceeds to make an offer to God from Baal's place. In the hopes of receiving another word. And the word of God is that he would bless Israel and not curse him. And so this kind of continues. God continues to bless, and that's all Balaam can do. He says in Numbers 23, God has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. So the Lord is God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Because Israel was obedient and was upright before the Lord, the presence of God was with his people. Now, Balak takes Balaam to another high place, Peor, which is mentioned in our passage here. Here they repeat sacrifices, they make petitions to God, but again, Balak is not allowed to curse the nation of Israel, only to bless. And so he recognizes he's kind of in a, in a predicament. I can't do what the king wants, and the king might kill me, but even better than that, the king didn't kill me, I still want the treasure that he has to offer. So he offers a plan B. He counsels King Balak how he might get the upper hand over Israel, he says, but this is what you should do. Convince them to offer worship to Baal. Convince them to forsake the God of the covenant and to offer sacrifices to the gods that you serve and that you worship. And so when he leaves, he receives the treasure from the king of Moab. But we see the destructive nature of his counsel to the king. In Numbers chapter 25, this is what we read. Israel, she remained, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their God. The people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Baal's the name of the God. And this we read, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And God sent a plague as a judgment on his people. 24,000 people were slain. And this is what Moses is reminding them. You're going to be tempted as you go into this land to change the word of God to fit what it is that you want. But be careful because God deals with sin seriously. Moses says, but those of you who felt held fast to the Lord in verse four, you are alive today. He says, this is an encouragement. You guys are still here. You kept yourself pure. And he goes on. He tells them. That he's taught the statutes and the judgments the Lord God has commanded him, and that they should do them in order that they might take possession of the land. But why? Why do these commands and these statutes? Well, he tells them, for this reason, that these will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? He says, to obey the word of God will set the people of Israel apart from all the nations around them. There'll be a people who will act in justice and in goodness. There'll be a people who will be marked out by social justice 
To obey the word of God will be Israel's wisdom and their understanding. And the people will see the way they live, their good deeds, and they'll glorify this God who is so near to Israel. That was true of the law when he gave it to the nation of Israel. But it's also true of God's word to you and me today. God's word is good. God's word is gracious to us. You can think of it kind of in two different ways, the way that God's word comes to us. There's a positive and there's a negative kind of sense in the word. There's kind of the negative in which God instructs us in certain things in order to protect us from the destruction of disobedience. In the same way that a parent says, don't touch the stove, the stove is hot. The child doesn't quite understand it, maybe when they're small. But as they grow, they understand that their parent loved them and they staked out certain boundaries to protect them. But there's also a positive sign in that God's word describes for us the kind of life that we should live as kingdom people. I'll give you an illustration of this. If you've seen the movie Karate Kid, it's not the, not the new one with Jackie Chan. I was terrible. But the old 1980s version with Ralph Macchio. You remember that story? You know, he gets picked on. He moves to a new town. and He's trying to figure out kind of his place in the world. And he's uh, being bullied. And, uh, and this, this you know, uh, karate expert saves him. All right, but he doesn't exactly know what's going on. And then he sees this same man who is kind of like the janitor in his apartment complex. And he invites him to come into his little workroom. And slowly this relationship begins to develop. And, you know, Ralph Macchio's character is invited to uh, Mr. Miyagi's home. And there Mr. Miyagi gives him a series of tasks to do. You know, uh, paint the fence, paint the fence, wax the car, wax on, wax off. And he soon gets frustrated. He's like, you know, you're not teaching me anything about karate. You're just here. You're having me do all the work you don't want to do. But he was really being instructed. He didn't understand the full scope of what Mr. Miyagi was doing. But Mr. Miyagi was teaching him. He was providing him instruction. God's word does the same thing and it enables us to live a life of blessing. We may not understand it like uh, Ralph Macchio's character. But God's word is good. Obedience to God's word is the path to blessing. What does obedience do? One, obedience proves that we do love God. John 14, I mentioned this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and we obey his commandments. But obedience also brings joy. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. But obedience also brings blessings to others. Remember back in Genesis, God made a covenant promise and he said, Through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed me. See, when we obey, God blesses not only us, but God blesses other people. I think it's Adoram Judson. He graduated from college and seminary. And upon his graduation, he received a call from a very prestigious church, a very fashionable church in Boston, to come and to serve on its staff, to be assistant pastor. Everyone was excited, congratulated him. His mother, his sister, they were excited because he would be able to remain at home and continue to do his work of ministry. But he shook his head. He said, my work is not here. God is calling me beyond the seas. And to stay here, even to serve God in his ministry, I feel would be only partial obedience and I could never be happy in that. And so he left his mother and sister and he struggled mightily throughout his life. But he followed God in obedience. He went to Burma 
And his churches had over 50,000 converts as a result of his ministry. And the influence of his ministry and his obedience is still felt around the world. Obedience blesses others. Moses reminds Israel of the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb in verse 10. But he impresses on them the impotence of the law to save. And the idea is that Israel, in being instructed by the law of God, is seeing the ways in which they would fall and fail, would come to depend on God's grace and on God's mercy. That they would then teach these laws to their children so that they would then live lives of dependence and obedience upon God. He reminds them that they were close to Mount Sinai. That there was fire, there was cloud, there was darkness, and there was a voice. There was the voice of God, but they could not see Him. This voice spoke the Ten Commandments and other laws. But the main point of this, this particular section is that they remember. They remember what it was, that God had no physical body. He had no physical form. They cannot forget this truth. And they have to tell this to their children. And their children have to tell it to their children. And their children after that. Why? Because the temptation as they go into this land is that they would adopt the practices of the people who were already there. And that was to build idols and to offer sacrifices and to worship those gods. So the Lord, he speaks out of the midst of the fire, but they cannot see him. But they hear his voice. He declares his covenant. And he gives to them the writing of the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. Forty years have passed since that moment. And they're about to enter into the land of Canaan. They're going to be faced with the same kind of temptation that you and me and people everywhere have been faced with. That's why he warns them in the verse 15 about being careful. Watch yourselves. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. He goes on. He's keen to warn the people of Israel about idol worship. Because idol worship happens wherever people are. It's absolutely a reality everywhere and at any point in time you go. Because you and I conveniently make God in our own image or the image that we want God to be. We make a God who doesn't interfere with our lives. We make a God that we can see, but that doesn't speak. We follow a God of our own devices. A God that looks good. A God that we carve out its features and that we, we cover with gold and jewels or whatever it is that we want. But this God never disrupts our lives by speaking into the darkness that's in us and saying, you need to love your wife or your husband sacrificially. You need to be bold and proclaim the truth of the gospel. This God never disrupts our life. This God simply rubber stamps whatever it is that we want to do. It's a domesticated, impotent God. It's what the Bible calls idols. And you have them, and I have them, and we need to repent of them. And we need to return to the living God. So here in Deuteronomy 4, we've got this interesting dynamic going on. Israel can stand on the brink of the promised land and follow the true God they can't see, but who speaks. Or they can follow a God who never speaks, but whom they can see. 
And we know they chose to do that earlier when they carved a golden calf at Mount Sinai. There's the God who has heard but not seen, or the God that's seen but never heard. Who are you following this morning? What gods are you worshiping? What idols are you bowing down before? Where are you making sacrifices in your life to get whatever it is that you think you need? See, being in a relationship with a living God means that He speaks and we listen and we obey. God has spoken through His Word. He's acted in history. He's come to us in the person of Jesus. And it's through His life, His death, His resurrection, His teachings that we see who and what God is doing. We continue as God speaks through His Word. The Holy Spirit brings His Word alive. He speaks to us through the Bible. So if you want to hear God speak, then you need to be in God's Word. Don't run from the Bible to try to find a relationship with God some other place. But God speaks through His Word. Now, there are other things that God does use. He does speak through his people. He does speak through his church. But fundamentally, foundationally, the authority is in the word of God. And we have to submit all these other things to what it is that God's saying in Scripture. Yes, Psalm 19 says the heavens are are telling the glory of God. Yes, God does reveal something of his nature and his wisdom and his beauty and his power and creation. But still, it's through his word that he reveals to us what we're to believe, how we're to relate to him through a gospel relationship. If you don't make this the center, if you don't make this the authority of your life, then you will be distorted and distracted. You'll be led astray. Because what you think you hear is not what really God is saying. I'll give you a real quick example. We went to Del Taco. And some of you know I have total hearing loss in my left ear, partial hearing loss in my right. We were at the counter. We were ordering. Hattie Margaret was standing there with me. And the guy behind the counter who was taking our order, he said, what name would you like with that order? Or what name should I put on the order? And so I just looked at him and I said, Robbie. And they both started laughing, the guy behind the counter and my daughter, Hattie Margaret, because what he really said was, would you like to add anything else to that order? But what I heard was something completely and totally different. It happens all the time, especially when we think God is saying what it is that we want. We can manipulate and twist things so that we think God is saying what we want, but that's because we've been distorted by sin and rebellion. Let me invite you. As Moses said, to listen to the statutes and the rules of God. To let the Bible be the place where God meets and speaks to you in your life. Let the Bible be the place where you learn what it means to listen and to love the Lord our God. To hear and to do what he says. And what you'll find is that he's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Even when you and I are faithless, covenant-breaking people. Let's pray.